Welcome to The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. COVID-19, yes, unfortunately, three years later, we're still talking about this virus. I've actually done four podcasts on it, and it's still, I don't know if the word is enigma, conundrum to physicians and the public, but today I am very excited to have an expert who has come up with a detailed method of predicting who may develop long-haul covid and actually has a protocol for treating it. Dr. Bruce Patterson is the CEO and founder of Incel Diagnostics, a company based in California. He is also a, uh, I think, a former associate professor of virology and pathology at Stanford University. Dr. Patterson has published over 100 papers on HIV research, and I believe he's worked with Dr. Anthony Fauci on AIDS research as well. Um, and I'm really excited. Dr. Patterson is actually coming from California to New York in a couple of weeks to speak. He's a keynote speaker at the Integrative Healthcare Symposium in New York City that's going to be at the Hilton Hotel on February 17th, which is just a few blocks from my office, so it makes it super convenient. Uh, so I'm really pleased to welcome Dr. Bruce Patterson to the podcast. Thank you, Dean. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay. So yeah, we have a lot of important stuff to get to. Um I was just really fortunate. I think I told you we had spoken earlier that I had, we had a patient in common that I learned about your work and got me really excited. But I did a little bit of background stuff because I always love to know what led the doctors I interview to get interested in the field that they do. And I did get a little bit of an insight that at a young age, I think you had a relative or something who was a microbiologist and took you into the lab and showed you what a virus looks like under a microscope, under an electron microscope. So can you tell us about that, like how you got interested in being a micro hunter, I guess? Yeah, you know, it was actually my, uh, my aunt, and she was a virologist, classically trained in the, in the 60s and 70s, and, you know, growing viruses on, you know, chick embryos and, you know, any other cells they could get their hands on. And, and yes, I was um, 17, <laughs> and I passed through Chicago, and um, we, um, she said, look, you know, let's, let's look at this sample. And we went into this room, which had this tube that was about 12 feet tall and it had this very amazing green glow to it. And felt like I was being irradiated, but then, um, took this very little screen that is, was like the size of a, less than the size of a cross section of a pencil eraser and put it into this enormous machine. So the, the, the dichotomy between, you know, the sample and the, the machine was incredible. And then started looking around and all of a sudden saw this thing that looked like a star in the middle of, a, uh, of this sample. And she said, that's it. I said, well, what is it? And she said, well, it's a Norwalk agent. And I said, yeah, it looks like a virus. And she said, well, it is a virus. And, you know, it was, um, it's now called norovirus. And it happens to be the cruise ship virus, you know. Right, right. Yeah, that's why I was. That's why I try to avoid cruises. I, I everybody gets sick on them. This was before um, COVID. You know, I was sold at that point. Um, like I said, that was more classical virology. Then I was trained in molecular biology and started applying molecular techniques to, to virology. And and what was very uh, interesting is in the last few years of her career, we overlapped at Children's Memorial Hospital in, uh, at Northwestern in Chicago. And, um, you know, she's still doing her classical thing. And I was still, still doing the molecular thing. And, you know, it was, um, it was really interesting those last couple of years, um, 
finally being able to um, to work together. So, yeah, that's that was the story. That was the beginning, and then um, it never got boring afterwards. Did you do like a pathology residency after? Because you know, that's obviously different than you know, like internal medicine and stuff like that. You you tend to not really be so patient based, you know. And yeah, my, kind of my whole you know my whole career has been um, uh, off the beaten path, and when when students and uh, others talk to me about, you know, careers in, in medicine, you know, they seem to be very um, narrowly focused when, in fact, careers in medicine can open you up to any number of opportunities. But yes, I was trained in pathology. I did a postdoc in molecular virology and HIV uh, in the late 80s and early 90s. And then uh, was in, continued my NIH-funded uh, research into HIV pathogenesis. And um, then was recruited um, by Stanford to become the um, head of virology and uh, continue my HIV research um, there and then founded uh, InCellDX in 2010, looking at um, you know viral diagnostics. And, and then I'd moved into HPV, which led to, of course, cervical cancer uh, and head and neck cancer uh, diagnostics and anal cancer. So um, soon we became, you know, both a viral and, uh, and a oncology uh, diagnostics company. Okay. Uh, get over to COVID because that is, you know, just we can't escape it. It's on the news every day, something new about it. Uh, it's a moving target for sure. I actually had, you know, I've been vaccinated and a couple of weeks ago, my son must, was, was at uh, watching a New Year's Eve, a football game. I know you're a Michigan guy. He was watching that big Michigan game with a couple of his friends Right. And I warned him, be careful. And, you know, and then he came to visit me a few days later and he, we, we tested him every single day before he came and while he was at us. And then sure enough, the second day he's staying with us, he got a bit of a fever and sweating. And I said, oh, no. <laughs> and then sure enough, my wife and I got it. Uh, fortunately, we did pretty well. But, um, you know, this Omicron thing is going all over the place. So anyway, your work is really, really fascinating because you are taking that deep dive into why patients are, um, you know, why some of the patients who are getting sick are developing this long-haul COVID. And again, we're going to get to later your treatment, which is really fascinating. Um, I wanted to ask you about symptoms. Um, just from your perspective, is there any reason why you think fatigue and brain fog and I guess a shortness of breath are the most common symptoms that we're seeing with COVID? Well, what's really interesting is this paper that um, will come out on the preprint servers next week, which is a outcome paper of our treatment um, um, protocol. And, and what's very, um, the most important aspects of it are, you know, using these five um, scales uh, rec recommended by the FDA. So there's subjective symptom scores, including a fatigue score, dysautonomia score, um, neuro um, deficit score, cardiac, um, and dyspnea or shortness of breath. And um, our therapy in six to 12 weeks, um, statistically significant lowered every single one of those scores um, in these patients, in these long haulers. But what was most important about it is we also did correlations with biomarkers and the biomarkers that we had developed and published uh, about eight months ago 
in frontiers of immunology. And people had said, well, you know, these are unvalidated, blah, blah, blah. We'd actually had validated them at reference labs, both here in the States and in the EU. And so been, they had been, you know, laboratory validated. Um, and, and finally, this paper validates their utility um, in terms of the disease, in terms of uh, COVID and long COVID. But what was really important was we were able to say, what cytokines are driving what symptoms, okay? So when you talk about fatigue, the one, the most correlated um, biomarker to fatigue is a marker called TNF-alpha. Mm. So that, that, you see that in the rheumatoid arthritis patients. Yeah. That's right. And, and, and the p-value had something like five zeros and a, and a one, right? So it was um, highly statistically significant. The other one was uh, IL-2, but nothing came up, nothing was more glaring than TNF-alpha. And so when you think about it, uh, and you have an emerging infection like SARS-CoV-2 in the acute phase, and we published this back in our first acute paper um, in, in, in middle of 2020, um, it's it's. COVID is a disease of macrophages because it's innate immunity. It's not adaptive immunity where you have, you know, effector T cells coming in and, and wiping out virally infected cells. It is primarily a, a innate uh, immune response early on uh, that eventually leads to this so-called cytokine storm. But one of the hallmarks of macrophage activation is interleukin-6 and TNF-alpha. And, you know, everyone talked about interleukin-6. I think even the, the drug um, Ectemra has been, um, uh, uh, at least has an EUA for use in, um, I think, severe um, COVID because it's a IL-6 antagonist. So when I looked at the first immune profiles, and this was like January, February, of 2020, I had just gotten back from China and had China colleagues and looked at samples from them. And what really struck me was um, uh, three markers, IL-6, TNF-alpha, and CCL5 or RANTES. And TNF-alpha, and, and all of those are markers of macrophage activation, which makes sense because that's an in, in, integral part of an innate immunity. Yeah, you know what, Dr. Patterson, you know what I'd like to do for a second? Um, for our listeners, and I have we have really smart listeners because I know I've gotten you know feedback from them and everything, and uh, I never like to dumb down anything. And in fact, I, I also I teach immunology at the medical school, so I like to try to give people the perspective. So I'm just going to take a minute because your stuff is like super complex and, you know, this is like, you know, nothing for you. But I want to just explain this to the listeners for a moment because what, what Dr. Patterson is saying is critical to understand why COVID is so, again, as I said earlier, enigmatic. There are really two main divisions that we like to immunology of the immune system. There's what we call the innate immune system, as he mentioned, which I like to also use the term primitive, okay? And there's what it's called, right? And there's also the adaptive, which I sometimes like to use for my students, the more sophisticated immune system. The primitive immune system is our first line of defense. So even when you cut your finger, you know, you have these cells, as he was mentioning, white cells that come to the area to clean up the mess. Um, but also within those white blood cells, there's something called monocytes. And those monocytes, 
when they parade around the bloodstream, when they actually move into the tissue, they become what's called macrophages. So they kind of change their uniform a little bit. I like to think of them, when again, when I'm teaching the medical students, that these cells are like the Pac-Men of the immune system. Now, I don't remember if everybody remembers the Pac-Men, but I do vaguely because I, I didn't, I wasn't a big video guy, you know, video game guy, but you know, that was very, that was the only game in town back in when I was growing up in the 70s. So these monocytes essentially go around and kind of gobble up dead tissue, if that's the case, in a cut, or if it's a virus or bacteria. And the thing about it, again, and Dr. Patterson will correct me if I'm wrong, is that it's a little bit like Groundhog's Day because these uh, Pac-Men don't really have a memory. They just keep on going around eating everything. They rely on what we call the adaptive immune system, that more sophisticated immune system, which I like to make the analogy is sort of like one of those smart algorithmic radar systems, our B cells and T cells that go into action, you know, when, you know, when, when it, especially when our immune system has seen a virus, a bacteria for that second or third or whatever time. So hopefully you, you know, you have much better clinical response. So, and again, just to clarify one other thing too, I want, you know, what you said is so important because it's something that doesn't really get looked at unfortunately, by most patients' doctors. You know, they're not immunologists, they're not virologists, so they're ordering regular cell counts and regular things, and they look at the yeah. blood, and they say to the person, you look all right, you know, I mean, nothing to say. Yeah. But cytokines, again, I like to explain to my students and to, the, to our listeners, think of it as the immune cells, the, 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 the hormones of the immune system. And essentially, these cells, as Dr. Patterson mentioned, like monocytes, macrophages, they secrete these cytokines or hormones of the immune system, like IL-6, a whole bunch of other things, TNF-alpha, et cetera, which we're going to go into a little bit more because he's discovered the pattern to look at, you know, to see how do we know that somebody's in trouble? And that's always been the issue because, again, for all of us, you know, I think what's been so frightening about COVID is that you look around, you know, your neighbor, your colleague at work, why does somebody, you know... Um, handle the virus reasonably well, it's like a bad cold, you know, et cetera. And somebody else is in the hospital being intubated. So sorry for cutting you off. I just, I wanted to give a little background for our listeners, because again, your, your level obviously is super high in your experience. Well, so I mean, that's, that was such an accurate description. Um, you know, and it's, it, it relates to this word emerging infections that I think a lot of people have heard about. Um, Emerging infections basically means that, that humans haven't seen it before. Right. And so you're absolutely right. We, we, the only mechanism we have to fight off something that we haven't seen before um, is this very um, primitive uh, innate immunity. And, um, and there's a thing called immunologic memory, which is what you're referring to. And that is, you know, when you've seen something before, when you've seen a bug before, that second time, your body has a means to react against it. And that's why many times, you know, people get a reaction against the second vaccine shot and not the first. You, you know, they get a little bit of arm soreness on the first one, but the second one, when you're going to start to get, you know, some aches and some chills and then potentially even fever um, because your body has seen the antigen before. So um, I think you're absolutely right uh, in that regard. But, you know, the other thing that's really interesting, and of course, cytokines and chemokines are basically soluble mediators of inflammation that's telling the cells of the body 
what to do. Okay. And, um, but in doing so, they also cause symptoms. Interleukin one, for instance, causes fever. Um, as I just said, TNF alpha from the data we're, you know, publishing, you know, next week, um, causes fatigue as does interleukin two. So, you know, we knew from a treatment standpoint that we could find strategies to, um, to reprogram the macrophages away from being pro-inflammatory and making this stuff, which we do through uh, a drug in the class of CCR5 antagonists, reprogram macrophages away from a pro-inflammatory phenotype, you're going to relieve the symptoms. And that's all we're doing is understanding. I mean, that was the thing we discovered is what we discovered what we think is the major, the major pathway in long COVID. Mm. And the unfortunate experiment is that in post-vaccination individuals who are never infected, um, they get long hauler symptoms. Some of them, uh, pretty small amount, but they get long hauler symptoms. And that is proof that what we discovered in COVID long haulers, that all of this is driven by the S1 protein. Here's a proof where all you're doing is injecting somebody with S1 protein. We would never be able to do that ethically, right? Um, in an experiment. But here we are with a vaccine that's um, actually, you know, doing its job. And, you know, I call it the get out of death free card, you know, infection <laughs> all the time, but it's a get out of death free card, right? Take it for what it is. Right. Um, but, you know, it's an experiment where you inject somebody solely with S1, not with the virus, solely S1, or actually more accurately S, which gets cleaved into S1 and S2. And, oh, by the way, causes the same symptoms as, can cause the same symptoms as COVID long haulers. We put it through our AI, and this is the other paper coming out next week. We have two papers coming out. Put it through AI, and AI classifies these patients as long haulers, even though they've never had COVID. And we found S1 in their um, monocytes, just like we did in COVID long haulers. And of course, this is in the complete absence uh, of uh, viral RNA and um, replicating virus. Um, I want to stop you on that too for a second. Now, it's just unbelievable. As I said, looking forward to this podcast, I just saw two patients this week with you know, symptoms of long haul COVID who were vaccinated. They had not been infected as far as they know. And, you know, it is such a difficult thing because obviously I'm so pro-vaccine. It's obviously going to, like you said, it's the get out of death card for free. Um, it can change our, you know, <laughs> our whole world if we got more people vaccinated and, and hopefully put this, you know, to a, a minimal issue. Um so what, you know, and when you keep on saying also the S1 protein, you're talking about the spike protein, is that, you know, that's from the RNA. So out of curiosity, as long as we're talking about all these cytokines, how do you diagnose, uh, what are you looking at uh, on the labs for these patients that have um, what looks like long-haul COVID from just the vaccination? What are you, what, you know, I know you mentioned you're doing this whole profile of labs. So is there anything that stands out? Is it, again, the tumor necrosis factor alpha almost like a real infection or is there something subtle? Well, 
when we first started working in COVID, we had um, we had over 150 um, soluble and cell-based biomarkers that we were looking at um, <clears throat> during the initial clinical trials and some drugs for acute COVID. And, and of course, then that's when we recognize it at, you know, 40, 60 days, patients were better. Patients were out of the hospital. Patients didn't die, but you know what? Their immune system was nowhere near normal. So that's when we asked the question, well, is their immune system different after 60 days? And that's where we did machine learning and AI and found a panel of 14 markers that defined who was long COVID uh, and who was acute COVID um, with uh, about 98% accuracy. Wow. And so That's um, we've now used that panel of antibodies because uh, ironically, it turns out that they represented uh, innate immunity, um, humoral immunity, which is antibodies, cell-mediated immunity, which is uh, T-cells, and um, what um, Joe Belanti likes to call um, damaging immunity, which I, I think is a really amazing term, which is, you know, there's there's factors liberated by the uh, immune response that are tissue damaging. Um, we know that that happens, uh, obviously, in COVID. But the computer basically helped us choose this panel. Now, we've gone on to use this panel on post-vaccination long haulers, post-Lyme, uh, fibromyalgia, ME-CFS. And because it's a broad stroke of, um, of our entire immune system represented by various um, cytokines and chemokines, um, it's giving us tremendous information that I'll be presenting next week at the post-infectious uh, immunology conference in Washington, D.C., um, sponsored by uh, George Washington um, University, um, prior to giving the talk in, in New York. So, um, well, I got to tell you something. This is like incredibly exciting because I think doctors, I've been taking care of chronic fatigue patients for over two decades. Um, you know, we've all been waiting for, quote, that, that immune signature, you know, to see some type of testing, you know, instead of seeing these patients coming to us and having essentially all normal blood studies, except for sometimes elevated, you know, past evidence of Epstein-Barr infections. But, you know, these patients are so frustrated. Every doctor tells them there's nothing wrong with you, but nobody's looking at this cytokine um, signature. The other thing I want to ask you, because I did this research many years ago, I remember these interleukins and everything were very hard to measure in the lab. Now, I know your company, InCell Diagnostics, which sounds like it's really, you know, on the cutting edge of all this. Um, and I, I, I'm going to encourage my patients to go to your site. I already have to get, um, get, you know, get their bloods drawn and to analyze this. But just out of curiosity, in case they go somewhere else and they say to their doctor, they hear this podcast, oh, you know, check my tumor necrosis factor, IL-6. Are the, the other major labs, are they adequate at doing this? I mean, is it still a very refined type of thing? You know, it was, you know, certain well, markers. Yeah. yeah. It, it's a great question because, you know, it's, we know in clinical pathology, it's very hard, especially with quantitative assays, to compare not only lab to lab, but technique to technique. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why for men, if you're having your PSA done, your urologist sends it to the exact same place that your previous PSA was run 
Okay. And if you're doing um, screening for uh, ovarian cancer in women, CA125, they send it to the exact same lab that they sent it to the previous time. So getting labs um, all aligned and getting assay to assay, um, uh, you know, tests aligned, um, it's just not something clinical med- clinical pathology has done. What we do is we establish our own normal ranges um, in each laboratory. And it doesn't matter if it's FDA-approved test or, or a lab-developed test. Every single lab has developed their own normal range. And when you're looking at something quantitatively and you're following it serially, um, it has to go to the same place. That makes a lot of sense, actually. That that you because know, right, I've seen between even labs here in New York. I mean, yeah. the the ranges are all over the place, and um, so typically with patients that you're following for long haul COVID, what, how often would you be doing these panels? Once a month? Once a quarter? I mean, just out of curiosity, what would it, be a typical? It, it, it all depends on how they're responding. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if they're responding, um, we'll go by symptoms. Um, if for some reason they're, um, not responding or they think they're better and it's time to take them off medication, um, then we'll repeat their labs to make sure that we've restored their immune system, um, back to where, um, it should be. And, and frankly, that's, that's how we proceed through our process is our first goal is to restore the immune system back to normal. And, Sometimes when they come to us and they're, they're bedridden, their immune system's all over the place. So, you know, the goal of therapy is to get their immune system back to normal. Once we get their immune system back to normal, we start increasing their activity and exercise to see if they can tolerate it. Tolerating exercise, so post-exertional malaise or post-exertional fatigue, is an enormous milestone, not only in long COVID, but in... Um, post-Lyme, MECFS, all of those, because they all share post-exertional malaise. And one of the reasons is there's two great, um, more than two great articles, but there's multiple articles written that are incorporated into our discussions in, in the paper that just got published uh, in early um, January and the one that's about to go in, is that exercise mobilizes the cell type that's carrying the S1 protein. And we also found uh, literature that showed that stress mobilizes the cells that carry the S1 protein. So it's no surprise to me that exercise is just a bad idea for, um, for long COVID. Yet there's so many long COVID centers in the United States to try to exercise it out of you. Yeah, and, I think it's such a great point. I know I, I heard you mention this on another interview that, you know, something I dealt with with uh, chronic fatigue patients too. You have to be so careful. That's why a lot of them I like when they do stretching exercises, breathing exercises, light things, because as you're mentioning, the exercise could actually make them worse, which is so frustrating because many of them are young people who yeah. exercise was was mental therapy, you know, you know, getting rid of all the stress out of them. And uh, But I think it's an important point if, you, you know, you have uh, – 
you know, plan. Let me ask you this too, because I guess one of the most frightening things to me, even as a physician, is when I was seeing patients that would have what's called this dysautonomia, meaning like their their blood pressure would rocket up and then drop. And, you know, and this was all the things that was causing them to not be able to get out of bed. Do you look at certain markers again, you know, and and then I'm, I'm curious now to kind of move into how you're treating them, because you have a whole different, I never saw this kind of concoction of medicines to treat, you know, to treat anything, but it looks fascinating. So maybe you could take us through that. Like why I believe you're using a protease inhibitor and a, a statin, a cholesterol statin medication. Like take, take me through a patient. Let's say if I, I saw a nurse, for example, this was a few months ago who was, you know, had been well to about a year and a half ago when she was working on the wards, she came down with COVID at the beginning before there were the vaccinations. She got extremely sick, had to stop working. But one of our most alarming things was the the blood pressure rocketing up, coming down, along with all the fatigue and everything else. So take me through like what markers you'd be might be looking at and how would you treat her? Well, the um the hallmark of um vascular inflammation, which we found, um, is the production of IL2 and um uh interferon gamma and VEGF, but vascular inflammation also causes a vasodilatation. If you're vasodilated, what does that do? Well, in your brain, it causes headaches, migraines, brain fog, tinnitus, hello. Um, in the periphery, if you're vasodilated, it causes a drop in blood pressure. And so the compensation for a drop in blood pressure is an increased heart rate. So it doesn't surprise me that that is, is happening. And then, of course, cold and heat insensitivity, right? So, you know, what what we're seeing is these, again, these other long COVID centers are just treating symptoms and symptoms. And, and they're going around this, this, this doctor uh, wheel of neurologists, cardiologists, pulmonologists, right. you know, um, treating their symptoms and applying their their own name to everything, POTS and dysautonomia and this, that, and the other thing. When at the end of the day, if you lower the vascular inflammation, and if you look in the atherosclerosis literature, in the cardiac literature, there's a lot on CCR5 antagonists and statins. And again, we, we, we really um, went to great extent to discuss that in our new papers um, on uh, on relieving uh, vascular inflammation and the potential for clotting, and and that's what we do. And then once you do that, those symptoms get better. And again, in our new paper, we have a dysautonomia scale. We see statistically significant decrease in the dysautonomia symptoms after six to twelve weeks of moravirac and statins. All right. Can you explain? Yeah. Can you explain? This is important too, because I, I find it fascinating because again, you, you chose in part of your protocol Maverick, which I wasn't that familiar with. Again, I believe it's a protease inhibitor for HIV originally, right? But you don't no, it's use... Actually, it's, it's actually an entry inhibitor, um, mm-hmm. which I think mm-hmm. is, is the red... It's a red herring mm-hmm. for, for Rantes and CCR5, right? This one of those things, well, oops, you know, look, all of a sudden it's HIV co-receptor. That's not what it does. Okay. It's actually quite elegant that CCR5 and CCL5 are involved in chemotaxis, mm-hmm. moving immune cells to sites of inflammation where they should be. Okay. The whole HIV thing was kind of a fluke. 
that mm. HIV happened to use CCR5 as a co-receptor. Okay, so I don't even think about it that way. Okay. There's so much in the literature about um, CCR5 antagonism in cancer, CCR5 antagonism now from a lot of our work in, in COVID, CCR5 um, antagonists in atherosclerosis. It is so much more than just an HIV entry inhibitor. You know, it's interesting. Okay. It's just too bad that they don't advertise it on TV every 15 minutes. You know, every every other HIV and, you know, biologic is on, you know, you turn your TV on every 10 minutes, there's a commercial on these medications. It sounds like this is a great way now of approaching this. And and I find it fascinating a little bit too, because, you know, they've used remdesivir and other antivirals. So you think those have limited or not really hitting the right target? Well, I think, I think, there, it, what we're talking about is apples and oranges. Okay. Um, in long COVID, what we really need is something that mm. prevents the migration of these cells carrying S1, that pre- prevents accumulation of these cells, which statins do, prevents these cells from binding to blood vessels through a pathway um, called fractal kind, which I'm sure nobody Ever heard I of. never heard of that before. I, I had a discussion with you. I'm, I just got a little smarter. That's why we call this the smartest doctor in the room. I get a little smarter every podcast. <laughs> well, this, this fractal kind, fractal kind receptor pathway is amazing and it's incredibly elegant. And fractal kind expression on endothelial cells draws in these non classical monocytes, which are uh, have um, S1 protein bound and is basically the start of this blood vessel um, inflammation. On top of that, fractalkine, and this is in our new paper, fractalkine on on expression on cells is regulated by what? Interferon gamma and TNF-alpha, our friends again, right? We're not friends. Um, And so when it's upregulated, it binds more non-classical monocytes. So it's this this, uh, feedback loop this vicious cycle of vascular inflammation um, at, that we break with um, our medications. And that's what gives long lasting um, relief from, from long COVID, post-Lyme, you know, ME-CFS, et cetera. Exactly. Well, this is the key thing. I, I'm sorry to stop you again, too, because you, you give so much information, but I want to like to sometimes slow down. You know, I think one of the things, and I've seen also a lot of chronic Lyme patients, et cetera, you know, there was always the the battle, the two schools of thought. Is this a chronic, quote, infection where the, where the organism is still replicating and causing problems? Or is it chronic inflammation, meaning there's some kind of signal to the immune system, like this thing is still there, even though it really isn't? So how how do you interpret this, the the long haul COVID? Is it more the just the chronic inflammation, not really chronic persistent infection? No, and we've already shown that in our paper that we published in early January is that we found S one protein fifteen now seventeen months after um, infection. Then we uh, sorted those cells and did whole genome sequencing, which is so critical um, to show that there's only fragments of RNA. All these other techniques um, that are saying, oh, there's there's COVID and, and long haulers and all these different tissues. Um, yes. The, and they do it by immunohistochemistry, which detects proteins, which doesn't mean anything about viral replication. 
or they use DDPCR, which detects small fragments, which we did too, which doesn't mean it's replication competent. Mm-hmm. And, and, or they use in situ hybridization, which detects small fragments, which doesn't say it's replication competent. So they're taking this huge leap based on just finding something that there's replication competent virus, which I, I don't agree with. And actually, I think Tony Fauci um, a couple of weeks ago came out. And, and agreed with that, you know, that he highly, highly doubts, especially in the RNA virus where RNAs degrade uh, the RNA quite quickly, um, that there's any uh, ongoing replication 12, 15 months out. I mean, we published ongoing replication out to 87 days. So I think three months um, is fair for ongoing replication, but not, not, not 15 months. Um, yeah. And I think the same battle, you're absolutely right, right you know, is, is um, debated in uh, Lyme. Oh, yeah. You know, oh, is yeah. the bug still there? Is the bug quiescent somewhere? Is there a reservoir for the bug? Or, you know, there is data showing that these non-classical monocytes and intermediate monocytes actually carry pieces of the cell wall of Borrelia for years and years and years and, and continue to elicit an immune response. So we treat the immune response in post-Lyme, and these patients are getting better. Um, But it's not to say that in somebody that may, you know, if they're on antibiotics, there's no reason not to do both. I mean, that was my classic approach to say shingles, right? Everyone's like, oh, give them steroids and make them feel better. Well, yeah, sure. But you know what? I'm going to make sure they're on antiviral, right? So I put them on antiviral for the bug, keep it from replicating then put them on steroids to relieve the inflammation, you know, and that was, that's a great combination. The problem is in, for instance, in, in acute COVID is um, we're not using very good antivirals. Now the one by Pfizer seems to be a good one. Um, And maybe we will have that option of treating with both an antiviral and a, um, and sort of, uh, any immunosuppressive, although I would say immune modulator would be far better um, because you would be susceptible to other infections. Um, that's a great combination. The one thing I've really, I'm interested in coming from the HIV field and, and it would seem like, you know, Tony Fauci would know this is that in monotherapy in HIV with a highly replicating, um, a highly mutating virus, um, resistance develops quickly. Yeah. And yeah. Has talked about how quickly resistance will, um, re- develop with this new Pfizer, um, using monotherapy. It did- you know, that's a great point. You know, that's such a great point because I know that when I trained in the, um, late 1980s, early 1990s, my department, we were doing the, um, AZT studies. Yeah, And, you know, at first, you know, it came out, whatever, it was a breakthrough. But then quickly after that, there was all this resistance to it. It wasn't until David Ho came up with his cocktail of three different medications, which is what we do for TB and other things, too. It makes sense. Hit the, damn, hit the damn microbe all directions at once after. and don't let it mutate and change. And, yeah. you know, and that, so that's my question also about ivermectin. I saw that in there. So kind of my eyes kind of wide, you know, obviously with all the controversy, you find that it also has a place in long COVID treatment? In it has- 
I like the fact that I think it's a, a really good immune modulator. Immune modulator. Okay. I think well, how would you define that, by the way, when you say well, immune modulator? I, I know for a fact that it does bring down some cytokines, okay. um, IL-2, interferon, gamma, etc., um, by itself. So, you know, that's that's part of what we're trying to do in terms of restoring the immune system back together. But basically now, you know, we, we stick with Moravarac and statins and for instance, we'll add in uh, fluvoxamine because fluvoxamine does um, also decrease um, cytokine expression. So that's what we're trying to do is restore the immune system back to normal. We're not trying to fight off any 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 virus. So the use of antivirals in long COVID is um, is absurd. Um, so, um, but you know, I think more data is coming out on ivermectin. Uh, you know, I'm still. You know, waiting to take that and and see what uh, what comes out of it. I know, uh, I know people on both sides of the fence. Um, I respect their opinions. Um, you know, they obviously have some data to support their opinions, but I would just still, you know, it's still you know being discussed, and um, I'm always open to to hearing hearing both sides. What about antihistamines? Also, I, I saw I think a patient we had in common was on antihistamines. I've had a few people report that, you know, that, wow, being on either H2 blocker or H1 blocker, again, is it more immune modulating, anti-inflammatory, or do you think there's anything to that? Well, that's why we kept this marker IL-13 in our panel, is we know when there's, a, you know, there's more of an allergic component to, um, to what's going on. So we use that as an indication that maybe we should add in a um, uh, Zyrtec or uh, famotidine or something, and we're not against that at all. So um, some people it helps, some people it doesn't. But at the end of the day, what we're really trying to do is get to the cause and treat the cause, uh, and then see where we are after we treat the cause. If there's still some remaining symptoms, then we go into let's treat the symptom mode, you know, mm-hmm. and we'll 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 address that. Okay. Well, Dr. Bruce Patterson, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to share your expertise. I love what you do because I think you're bold. I mean, I know so many patients that have been going to centers where they're just collecting information on them and they don't get any feedback. I mean, you're really out there doing something. Uh, As I said, I'm super excited to hopefully be able to work with you. Where can patients find out more about your company, InCell Diagnostics? You know, if they want, if they themselves have COVID or they have a a family member that has long cold COVID and wants to, you know. I mean, there's two ways. I mean, obviously the best way to get into the program directly is www.covidlonghaulers.com. And that actually applies for post-Lyme you know, post-vax, mm-hmm. post, you know, um, MECFS, fibromyalgia, we, we see them all. And, and there's checkboxes once you get in um, into the, the website. Uh, obviously, info at InCellDX uh, is another way if there's any issues with um, uh, registering through the uh, website. So those are the ways to, to, to get a hold of us. Um, and, of course, somehow my contact information is out in the uh, – hyperspace so um my phone's always buzzing <laughs> at least well hopefully you won't have to uh go go you know go incognito soon so anyway well i'm super excited to have you i'm super excited to hear you speak at the upcoming conference and uh thanks again for right. sharing this great information yeah i look forward to potentially meeting him in person so um, okay I'll talk soon all right, all right. take care thank thanks bruce yeah. okay. bye